Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I have been Black for a long time. In addition to my decades of lived experience as a Black man in America, I have devoted considerable time and energy to studying and learning about the Black experience. Between all the marching and protesting and sitting in a college, the one degree I was able to get out with was in African-American studies. And we are recording today's podcast in the month of February, a month known for being the shortest month of the year, and also for the annual four-week acknowledgement of Black people that we call Black History Month. As I said previously on this podcast, I don't like Black History Month. I find it is often tokenistic, paternalistic, and superficial. I have a column published this week in The Guardian explaining that February and every other month is actually White History Month. In this particular February, we are also seeing this debate over the College Board's advanced placement classes in African-American history, which Florida is rejecting as supposedly without merit. I address this in the column, but what I'll just point out here is that lost in all this controversy about the College Board course is that they've been offering AP classes since 1955, the year Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the Montgomery bus, and they're only just now getting around to offering their first class in Black history. And so what is most frustrating to me about the treatment of Black history is how marginalized it is presented in the country, when in fact it is fundamental to the very identity of the nation. And I close the column by quoting from the seminal work of the 1619 Project, incredible endeavor spearheaded by Nicole Hannah-Jones to get the New York Times to mark the 400th anniversary of Africans being brought to these shores. And in, in publishing the special edition of the New York Times Magazine in 2019, the Times wrote that the goal of the effort was to, quote, reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year. Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of Black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. That is how we should approach Black history, in my view. And I'm delighted that in today's episode, we have the perfect guest for this moment and this month to talk about the 1619 Project. Originally, 1619, as I mentioned, was a, a, the print edition of the New York Times Magazine, but the content has been made into a podcast, and this month is now an excellent documentary on Hulu. And I'm thrilled that we're joined today by the showrunner of that Hulu documentary. And for this conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang, who has not been black as long as me, but is a fan of marking this month, and more importantly, has been a longtime colleague and friend of our guests. Hello, Charlene. How are you? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. I am like honored to even have you frame me as maybe I haven't been black as long as you. I'm no, I am so excited to be here today to talk to a dear friend of mine, actually who, you know, as you said, is the showrunner for the Hulu docuseries on the 1619 Project. But thank you so much for framing everything up that way. I also have mixed feelings about Black History Month, but not being Black, I definitely don't have the exact feelings you do. One of the things I do try to do is since it it is a thing, Steve, and it's not going away. And I do, as a parent, use it, mm -hmm. try to use it to the best of my abilities. It is a concentrated time when my daughter, luckily in the Berkeley public schools, because we don't live you know, in certain parts of the country, they are all about really doing their best to concentrate and 
uh, lift up stories of Black achievement and pride and his different parts of history. Mm -hmm. So my daughter gets really into it and we have a lot of great conversations. And what we do, especially this year, since she's older and more of these movies and TV shows uh, since she's 11, the content she can handle, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, we can have these more mature conversations. So what I told her is we can watch a show or movie every night during dinner, which is not what we usually do. Mm -hmm. And I said, as as long as it is tied into somehow black history and black culture. So mm-hmm. she's very excited about that. So we've watched Hidden Figures, which I've wanted to share with her forever. And she was in the past not that interested. And this mm-hmm. year she said, you know what, mom, I, I want to watch it. She loved it. We had great conversations. We when watching um, some of the episodes of the 1619 Project that are like appropriate for her age. We also watched The Woman King, which uh, is apparently based on a true stories about all women led uh, African tribal warriors with Viola Davis as the lead. And part of it does touch upon the history that ties into uh, Black American history. We also watch both Black Panther movies. And my husband said, oh, I don't know. Like, that's fictional. I don't know if that counts as Black history. I said, well, the movies made Black history and that it's the first Black Panther is the first Marvel superhero. And I said, that definitely counts. I'm counting yeah, that as Black yeah. history. People don't know the whole story of the fact of there being a Black Panther uh, story is is part of the historical arc yeah. here. So speaking of superheroes, I'm like beaming. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to today's guest. I'm really thrilled that she's making time for us today. She's somebody I've actually wanted to have on our show for a long time now, uh, and that today's timing is perfect. She's a longtime friend of mine who I adore and admire so much. Our guest today is Shoshana Guy. Shoshana is a showrunner, executive producer, and director. She most recently served as showrunner and executive producer of Hulu's six-part 1619 Project docuseries, which was first aired in late January. She also co-directed episode two of the docuseries. That episode is titled The Race Episode. Before her work on the 1619 series, show as I and many who love her and get to know her end up calling her show was the showrunner for the Peabody and NAACP image award-winning Netflix series high on the hog which some of you listeners may remember I definitely talked about when that came out that's on Netflix definitely try to catch it that uh, series is excellent as well Shoshana holds a master's degree from Columbia School of Journalism, also fondly known as J School, also my alma mater for my where I got my master's. We didn't go at the same time. It's another lovely coincidence of our life, uh, things that we share in common. She cut her journalism teeth in the halls of NBC News, where she focused on issues of race and justice. And she worked with Tom Brokaw. And for years, she worked as producer of NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams. She worked with Brian Williams for a long time. And she was also a producer with PBS. Shoshana is usually based in Brooklyn, New York. Shout out Brooklyn. But right now she's in Brazil and she's on a much deserved hard earned vacation and taking the time out of her vacation to talk to us. She's been working for about, I think, about two years on the 1619 series. So right now she deserves to be on a beach. I hope she's on a beach. (laughs) Welcome, Shoshana. We're so happy to have you here. Hi, Shar. I'm so happy to be here. Hi, Steve. Hi, Shoshana. Thank you so much for joining us. And and to both of you, I did not realize until this moment, this connection around Columbia Journalism School. And then, I mean, I, Charlene, I've talked about this. So my uncle, my late uncle, Ernthia Cochran, he went to Columbia Journalism School in the 50s. 
And then he was one of the first black reporters covering the White House, the Washington Evening Star wow. in the 1950s. Oh, wow. And he really inculcated in me this love of writing and journalism as well. And so I had. Yeah, we found out we were both J School alum after we met through family. Char is how we know each other is Char's husband. Is it okay if I call you Char or should I be calling you Charlene? Is this official? No, please (laughs) show This is the first time in eight years I've heard someone call her Char. So now you've added to my repertoire. So, so, um, I uh, grew up with Charlene's husband. Um, Charlene's husband's parents were very good friends with my parents. And so her both her husband and her brother-in-law are very close family friends. In fact, I went to prom with her brother-in-law. Oh, my God. So we're old family friends. (laughs) We're old family friends. um, And, you know, when we met and we had all these things in common, including journalism and Columbia J School. And the way I was trying to describe before, you know, when I told the team, oh, you know, I'm so excited to have Shoshana on. So I couldn't even, I was trying to remember the exact moment we met. And I guess it was so long ago. You know, I think it's been almost nine, like 19 or 18 years. Anyway, thereabouts, we were 10, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously. And and just the magic of, you know, when you meet somebody who is connected to your partner at the time, uh, my husband was my boyfriend, but you have a magical, like, chemistry with one of their family friends like so when the minute I met Shoshana I was like I love you (laughs) like you know we were just off and running laughing chatting we had so much in common not only that but you know people have heard me say uh, because I've often recorded from Canada rural British Columbia you know mountainous forest late in Canada it is a predominantly white community and I think it was also this special thing of you know Shoshana being multiracial black mom white dad black it's just that i was one of the only people of color in these social circles which were lovely but it was also just lovely to be like these two women of color mm-hmm. and being journalists and just having i don't know lots to laugh over and lots to chat over and we just connected like sisters uh, and we are i do feel like we're family so it's really just special to have you on today i think the challenge i was telling you know our team like the challenge is shoshana i need to stay focused because we could talk for hours about so many things, but also <laughs> I actually have so many more questions about the show, but we're going to try to stay focused. Okay. All right. Let's stay focused. We'll get it, we'll get it done. All right. Yeah. So here we go. So like I said, I've been wanting to catch up with your show ever since High in the Hog. Again, everybody also check that out. And then once I found out that you were the showrunner for the 1619 Project and that you were working with Nicole Hannah-Jones and we, all of us here at Democracy and Color are huge fans of the project. Also, when I found out the project, the Hulu series was Oprah connected, she was also going to be uh, one of the executive producers. I was like, okay, show, you are so badass, like just next leveling up all the time. Like I blink and Shoshana is doing something next level, bigger and bigger boss woman. And I thought we definitely have to have you on. You know, Steve kind of covered the significance of the original project of what I call the paper, the paper edition, the news sure. the news magazine edition. And so you've been able to collaborate on this show with Nicole Hannah-Jones, Academy Award-winning filmmaker Roger Ross Williams, and with Oprah, and all of it being spearheaded by you. And I wanted to just ask you, how did you get involved? I never even got to ask, I don't even think I ever got to ask you how this came your way, 
what drew you to it and how you got involved? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I had, you know, devoured the magazine and the podcast. And I always thought, you know, I remember listening to the podcast. I think I like to multitask when I listen to podcasts. I think I was cycling and I just had to stop. It was so, in the middle of what I was doing, I just had to stop and finish listening to it because it was so significant to me. I felt so seen and so Mm -hmm. emotional in that moment. And I never could have imagined that I would actually be running, you know, collaborating with Nicole and, you know, contributing to her vision and her legacy. It's just been such a deep honor to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we intersected obviously because um, Roger Ross Williams, I had worked on, you know, it's the same shop that produced High on the Hog. His production company, One Story Up, produced High on the Hog. And so I came in as a hired gun for him and show ran High on the Hog. And then uh, he became the production company um, for 1619. And so it was just kind of a, a, a natural fit, I think, for us. You know, they had interviewed a bunch of different people, um, but Nicole and I just really had an immediate connection um, and she had, she has said, as soon as she got off the phone with me, she called Roger and said, she's the person. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I have, I'm a bit of a unicorn in the sense that um, for this project in particular, my skill set was a very good match because, because it's a journalistic project. She really wanted somebody who was a journalist and had those kind of chops and that kind of integrity around the work. And then I'm black and I'm a showrunner. So there's all these sort of combinations of things that I am that are kind of hard to find um, in terms of skill set. So it was a really good match. And when we found out our Waterloo connection, that was just kind of a little bit crazy. And as far as I'm concerned, ancestrally connected. Um, and, And the story of that is that, you know, Nicole was born and raised in Waterloo, Iowa, which you know, it's really, it's not like, you know, two black people going like, oh, you have family in Chicago? Oh, I also have family in Chicago. <laughs> it's not the same thing. Waterloo, Iowa is, I mean, there are very few black people there and it's its a small town. Mm. And in fact, my father was born in Waterloo, as was my grandmother. My great grandparents came up, actually my great grandfather came up from the South. Um, there were railroad jobs at the time. Um, and came up for railroad jobs and ended up settling there um, with my grandmother and and her siblings. And so at the time, my father grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, because that was the, you know, there's a reason why that song, Kansas City, Here I Come, it was the hot spot, you know. So anyone who was young and wanted to get in it, as my grandmother did, would go to Kansas City. So, you know, my father actually grew up in Missouri and most of my, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and most of my family's there now, but they're from Waterloo, Iowa. And it's just kind of crazy because her grandma was born in 1924, as was mine. And I just feel wow. like our families must have known each other because it's such, such a small community. It's not even though her grandmother came later from Mississippi and my grandmother ended up going to Kansas City. My father was there for every summer of his life. His boyhood summers were spent there. So I just feel like our families know each other. And we yeah. were like, OK, what, what is wow. this? This is <laughs> this is kind of this is weird. Know, this so, is like. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Like I, I mean, yeah, come on. We're destined to do this together. So, yeah. All right. Can you actually explain? I mean, I listen to different podcasts about television entertainment, whatnot, and I've heard this phrase showrunner a lot, and I say yeah. it as if I know what it is. Yeah. Can you actually describe <laughs> what a showrunner is? Yeah. So, a showrunner in the, do- I'll just speak from the documentary space because it's a little bit different in narrative. 
So the showrunner for the in documentary space is really in charge of two things. One, they're in charge of executing the creative vision. And then it's also showrunning the staff, making sure, you know, hiring the staff, managing the staff. This was a huge staff. When I did the Christmas party, it was, I'm like, wow, I was in charge of a lot of people. <laughs> it was, you know, upwards of 70 people when you had everybody, the editorial, the editors, the, the graphics people. It was a big, massive team. Um, and so you're in charge of, you know, running that team. But, you know, you really do everything. You, you oversee, um, you go through scripts, you look at cuts, you give notes. You know, I roll my sleeves up quite heavily and my team knows that I'm very involved in the scripting. And I'm like, y'all just get used to it. You're going to get rewritten. <laughs> so, <laughs> so really everything that it has to do with getting the, the end product that you see on television, the, the, the person, you know, in my position is, is really in charge of that. The, the formal title is executive producer and the colloquial is showrunner because we're running the show. And I also happen to have show in my name. So <laughs> I'm built, I'm built for it. <laughs> very helpful. <laughs> Um, well, you, so you mentioned the the size of the staff, and that's one of the things that struck me. It's also, I think, one of the social change lessons of the whole 1619 project. And I've heard, you know, interviews of um, Nicole Hannah talking about this as well, in terms of when she was at the Times pushing that platform with that level of reach and prestige and influence to do this type of content. And mm -hmm. that, I think, is part of the significance of the overall endeavor is that getting these very powerful institutions to turn their resources in this direction. So it's completely evident in, in watching the documentary. It's very high production values. That's, there's a lot of resources that had to have been invested in that. Yes. So most entertainment platforms don't direct their resources toward black folks. How did you guys get the project greenlit and finance is a question I have. Well, I mean, I really, it's hard for me to speak to that because that's really Roger Ross Williams domain. You know, mm -hmm. I come in as a showrunner, I come in, I don't own the production company. So I come in as a hired gun. Mm -hmm. But what I can tell you, you know, Roger is very committed to black content. He's very committed to black stories and to black teams making those stories. And that's really the focus of his production company, One Story Up. And so he has a lot of leverage in those spaces. He's well known. He makes amazing content and he pushed for it. And it's Nicole Hannah Jones. I mean, it's not a, you know, it's somewhere upwards of 30 million people listen to the podcast. I mean, this was not, you know, a little engine that could project. This right. was a big muscular project that had the backing of the New York Times and had, you know, the heart of Nicole Hannah-Jones. I just can't say enough about my collaboration with her. You know, really, I've been saying this since we've been doing press, but was just so honored to work with her. She's really the kind of person, you know, what you see is what you get with Nicole, her level of integrity and her level of commitment to the work, the way that she treats people that she works with is just top shelf. And, you know, that's saying a lot because it's not always the case sometimes when you work with someone who's in the public eye, you know, it looks all glossy on the outside and then you get behind the scenes and you're like, oh, no, what's going on here? And she's just absolutely the best. I adored working with her. And so I think her drive, her, her, her push, her, her uncompromising viewpoint um, that she just not was not going to back down from this work that is really her life's work mm -hmm. and that she envisioned from a long, long time ago and, and finally um, brought to fruition. So between Roger and Nicole, they were really the ones to cut the deal. And then I came in and made it work for them.
Yeah, all of what you just said about her came across in this series. Yeah. I just felt like this woman, I was like, this woman is amazing. And it's good to know She's that amazing. she, you, I trust you that she truly is. By the way, I don't know if we have mentioned it yet, but she did win a Pulitzer for that first magazine series. That and small so it's little just, award no one's heard of. Yeah, yes. it's just um, <laughs> in, incredible yeah. and so well-deserved. And, and we're talking about, you know, the, the blackness of the series. I've been watching the series and I just, you know, what I I wanted to convey is that to you and the entire team, the beauty of being black, the pride, the lush, there's some, the, the cinematography, but also all the faces, the very intentionality that I got from the weaving in in every episode of different black people of different ages, different skin tones, different locations, different styles. I know there's one backdrop that you guys had where it has this sort of wallpaper that says blackity blackity black yeah and yeah. <laughs> i love it and it's just very subtle there's no like sometimes there's no rhyme or reason why there's even that sliced in but it feels right and it's just a lot of that is really interwoven where you you know the voiceover could be talking about capitalism or music or yeah. democracy and it works beautifully like the way poetry does and so just to give listeners some insight who haven't checked it out yet, you know, in the sh this docuseries, Nicole weaves in her own family history with interviews with not just members of her family, but historians, activists, and just like a fabric of personal anecdotes and then history and then expert insight. And the series, in terms of the structure, is broken into six chapters, six topics, democracy, race music, capitalism, fear, and justice in that order um, in terms of how it was rolled out. How did you and Nicole decide on the six themes Were you and the team? And, you know, we are talking about 400 years of history. So I remember saying to my husband, I was like, oh, man, I can't even imagine how overwhelming it must have been to try to do justice to this entire history. But y'all did a, like an amazing job in ultimately very few chapters, very few episodes. So yeah. how did you choose those as the themes to focus on? Yeah, I mean, we really, you know, the, the the themes follow the essays, right? So the book, you know, besides it being a special magazine and a podcast, it also is a book, um, which is a beautiful book. Um, if you haven't gotten it, run out and get it. And it published, I think it was November of 2020, where are we? 2021. So sort of November of 2021. Mm. And so I cannot tell you how many times the producers and I have read these essays in order to translate them. So the episodes are, you know, translations of the essays. And in terms of choosing, it was really Nicole that was really, you know, there were certain ones in terms of, you know, starting out a, you know, a, a first season, you know, hopefully we'll get a second season and we'll be able to dive into more topics. But in terms of a first season, mm. it was really like you had to touch on these big building block ideas of what makes up America. You had to do democracy. You had to do capitalism. You know, music was kind of our way of breathing for a second, you know, even though there is complicated material in there and, 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 and sorrowful material in there that is around minstrelsy and stuff, it is music after all. And so it gives that kind of like, ah, we get to breathe for a second before we go into mm -hmm. um, these other episodes. We had to do the episode on race. Mm -hmm. And we were toggling back and forth with the fear episode between that and Second Amendment. 
Um, and we really want to be able to do Second Amendment. But the timeline on this was obviously, you know, even though we worked on it for nearly two years, a showrunner always wants more time. And we just, you know, with the complexity of Second Amendment, we realized that, you know, like it was biting off a bit more than we could chew that was on the timeline. So we ended up with um, Fear, which is also an amazing essay that turned into the, this episode. And then the the Justice episode, which is really our call for reparations, we felt that in the same way that the book does, after you've read all of these essays, when you come to the final end of the book, Nicole's reasoning of that is like, we hope that we see that like, you've got all these pieces now, now let's talk about what is owed. And so we wanted to do the same thing in this first season that we talk about after you've seen all this, what is owed to Black Americans. Yeah, and I thought that that part, uh, well, I thought the whole thing was great, but I really thought it was great ending with that what is owed piece. And that's actually how I tried to wrap my, uh, the book um, that I published that you know, Charlene and I worked on, How We Won the Civil War, is this whole question, before even getting to the specifics of reparations, like it's like, what is owed? And I just thought that was mm-hmm. such a powerful way to frame it. Yeah, I, I also learned a new word. I did not know there was such a word as quadrillion. And that was uh, Professor Darity talking about the amount that reparations could actually amount to. And I didn't know there was a number. He was saying that 12 trillion, you know, was the one estimate. But he said other people had a number in the quadrillions, which required me to look up how big that number is. And it's much bigger than trillions. So that was an interesting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so Dr. So, Darity. Right. There are bigger numbers, as Dr. Darity yes. would like to say. Yes, but I, I do have a, a content creation question, right? So that you know, Charlene asked and I how we know each other, right? She was the book editor in both of my books. Helped me to realize that uh, I did not know the Microsoft Word had a function where it counts the number of edits in a chapter. <laughs> so Charlene sent me back a edited version had three hundred edits in it. Um, but the, <laughs> But the verb that is stronger because of it, and we have survived. But I was struck by, and this is frankly a slight diversion into Hamilton, but why I defend what blew me away was it's so difficult to, as, as a content creator, to decide what to include. Tell me focus about it. on. Yes, like that's yeah. my question. <laughs> and then I'm feeling my pain. Right. But how do you then? Yeah. So it's hard enough to choose what content and words. But then what, how do you then move towards images and video? So can you talk about that process? Honestly, I think that was the hardest aspect of the project was, you know, because in our medium, in television, and Nicole and I, you know, she's joked about this as we've done press, where we do like a first initial write through and then we give it back to her to write through and we're batting it back and forth because Mm -hmm. we're really, especially where her essays are concerned, we're literally pulling her writing out Mm -hmm. of the essay in some cases Mm -hmm. and applying it to the medium. And we would get it back and I'd be like, girl, no. Like, I know, <laughs> I know all of this yeah. is important, but we can include all yeah. of this. And, you know, so the uh, challenge of our medium, what you get with the visual medium is you get the visuals, you get the emotion. Mm-hmm. But what you totally. often lose and what you're fighting for is context. Mm-hmm. And in our medium, you can't mm-hmm. have a whole bunch of ideas like the density of it. You have to sh- you have to strip away in order for mm-hmm. people to be able to take it in, consume it, not flip the channel because it's too mm-hmm. damn dense and they're like, wait, what's going on now? Keeping it streamlining the ideas. So really, you know, you might be in, in one chapter in an hour, you know, you have five parts in this in this section, you know, in this in the, the way that we structured them. It's really five parts, you know, and each of those parts ends up being 10 or 11 minutes. 
Well, each part can really only have one or two ideas. Mm-hmm. And so what we did mm-hmm. is we, you know, again, we went back to the essays and it's, it's like a redaction process. You know, mm-hmm. what's that word? Wait a minute. It's you, you're reducing, you're reducing, you're reducing, you're stripping away, mm-hmm. right? Until you're getting down to the core elements. What are the core ideas that the audience has to understand about this particular topic? And then everything else falls away. You know, and there's a lot of stuff that we left on the, you know, there's whole scenes and, and, you know, unfortunately, in some cases, whole shoots that we went out that didn't make the cut because just the density of it. So, you know, and I'm a big, the team will tell you, much to their chagrin, that I demand outlines. You can't be working in my shop and be going out higgly piggly shooting anything and then coming back (laughs) in and trying to make it work. I want to know, you know, Things change out in the field and then you bring them back into the edit room and then you make it in the edit room. But the worst thing you can do is just go and shoot a whole bunch of stuff and then come back in and try to make it up in the edit room. So I demand outlines and those outlines were based on the essay. So it was a, a very long process, you know, from figuring out in the development phase pre-interviewing people, figuring out what what modern day story was best reflective of the history. And again, just time was, you know, not necessarily on our side. So, you know, some of the episodes were so complicated mm-hmm. that I th- was, I'm thinking of race in particular. When we finally figured out how we could best make the modern day connection, it was almost time to turn it in. Mm. I mean, we were just running against the clock, Mm. you know? So that I think is the hardest. I mean, we must have rewritten capitalism 40 times. Wow. And that's a lot. Like, like, like nailed it, nailed it. Like when I, when I worked at NBC news, you were humming along if you did eight or nine versions of it. Wow. How long did it take then in terms of like to do an episode and then the whole series? Well, we were in production for, you know, about a year in, in nine, nine, close to two years, but Keep in mind that that didn't include, like, when I say we were in production, then I started hiring. It took me time to build the team, to get everybody onto the team, to onboard people. So the real production, you know, we probably did this in a year and a half. And, you know, I would have, like, I dream about all the things I could have done if I'd had six more months. <laughs> or, you know, so because the trickiest thing is finding the narratives that you can that you can drape across this, you know, mm-hmm. drape across the mm-hmm. episode. And that stuff just takes time. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm seeing why you and Charlene became friends. The very first lunch Charlene had, <laughs> she says, you have to kill the babies, right? In terms yep. of editing the things that the writer cares about. It's a terrible saying, yeah. but that's what it is. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about the race episode. And I may be biased because I did hear from your family early on that that was the episode that you co-directed. So mm-hmm. it was the one episode that you actually co-directed. But then once I watched it, I'm, I'm telling you, it is a standout episode for me. And I, it's not just because oh, you co-directed sure. it. It <laughs> is so strong. No, I mean, it is so powerful. So just to give listeners a little bit of background. The episode starts with Nicole sharing the difference between her paternal grandmother, who was a black woman, and her maternal grandfather, who was a white man. Both of them were born in 1924, but as Nicole says in the episode, that's where the similarities end. And so what I thought was fascinating is you start this episode on race thinking that you might know what this episode is going to cover, and it does, but it connects the dots, and I'll let you share more about it, from race to then talking about Black women and the treatment and experiences of Black women during slavery as enslaved people and how all of that connects to become what we know as race today and these things like racial categories today. It was 
incredibly powerful, not not easy to watch in terms of the topics that it eventually touches on. I remember when you and I were texting, I said, I love your show. I've been watching it with you know my daughter. And you said, you might want to not watch the second <laughs> yes. one because of yes. the, the yeah. material is, oh, uh, yeah. you know, let's say advanced for mature audiences. I wanted yeah. you just to tell us a little bit about that episode. How did you come to co-direct it? Just talk about it a little bit. Yeah, that episode, it was directed co-director Naima Jabali Nash, who's also producer on this series, who produced Capitalism, created by Black women. And I think for us, it was, Nicole talks about this as well, probably the hardest emotionally to wade Mm -hmm. through because talking about the systematic rape of Black women and the Mm -hmm. creation of race in our wombs and the taking of the most tender, the most vulnerable, the softest parts of us for profit. And that really it was our wombs that created money for this country. And it, it's it's very, I mean, we didn't even get to scratch the surface in terms of what we read, in terms of what mm-hmm. we took in, in order to create the storytelling. It's only, you only get a, a, a fraction of that. And so it was incredibly emotional to, for all of us, I think, um, speaking, you know, on my, on behalf of myself, but I've heard everybody else say it too, to create that and very complicated because there was a lot that we wanted to do and only so much time to do it in. And so we really were trying to figure out what direction to go in. You know, when you talk about rape, unfortunately for women in this country, we live in an incredibly sexually violent society where many women of all different colors are subject to sexual violence. Are Black women subjected more? Probably. Do we not go to the police as much because of our relationship with the police? Probably. Mm -hmm. But the empirical data is just not there. You know, like the numbers, like, you know, in fact, Black women are so at the bottom of society, they really are not like when we were trying to do the the actual nuts and bolts journalism of it, we're looking at studies. We're like, well, 2008, well, shit, what, what, what we can't, you know, we're using, you know, stuff from 2008, 2010. It just wasn't really there, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the hard numbers and how do you, how do you connect the past to the present through what we can actually sink our teeth into and grab onto And so, you know, that really became about um, maternal health, maternal mortality, infant mortality, because those numbers are at least studied and we can understand what happens to black women, to our children through that study. So that's how we ended up going in that direction. But there are many different directions that we were exploring to try to make this connection. And for the audience who hasn't watched it yet, really understanding that, you know, these ideas of who was black and who was white really came about in the 1600s and in the colonial era where, you know, they were talking about, well, wait a minute, you know, now that we have, you know, Africans here and there's these babies being born in many cases and in most cases out of rape, what do we do about this? Because England was a patrilineal, you know, so whatever, you know, the father had, the child would then have. And they're like, well, this can't, this can't, this can't work out. We can't be having, you know, black people entitled to our wealth. Mm -hmm. And, and, and more importantly, entitled to our power. So we have to write laws that say any child born to a Black woman is automatically Black and therefore automatically enslaved. And so really the concept of race starts in Black women's wombs in this country. Wow. And so if we were going we to start there, then we had to draw that line all the way to present, you know, and, and what happens to 
our babies. Yeah, no, you could you could tell the creative kind of energy and and pioneering of trying to tell that story in that way was very, you could just, um, you know, see how much was actually involved in it. It was very, very powerful. Yeah. And I don't think people, you know, we, it's something that we just don't want to talk about in this country. So I think we talked about it and we felt like in some ways it was our most radical episode because we're actually saying out loud, the numbers speak for themselves. When you stop bringing enslaved people here (laughs) in the early 1800s, there were roughly, you know, 700,000 people. And by the, you know, the dawn of the Civil War, it was nearly 4 million people. So the systemic rape of Black women, it must be talked about. Yeah, no, James Baldwin has this line, says, white people don't hate Black people. If they did, we'd all be Black, right? In terms of the different mm-hmm. color, color gradations that came about through all the rapes and whatnot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In terms of things people don't want to talk about, they don't want to talk about 1619 period, right? And so the whole project has been, you know, quite controversial in this country. <laughs> Former president of the United States creating a commission, to, to a 1776 commission to try to refute it. Mm-hmm. So there's been all these attacks, even from within some of the different black academics and whatnot. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious how the, what the reception has been for the documentary since it's come out. Yeah, I mean, so far, so good, we think. <laughs> you know, we have, it, it always takes a little time. You know, mm-hmm. streaming is a funny thing. It takes time to figure out people. But, you know, our reaction so far, uh, the reaction, you know, that we've gotten so far, um, I think has been very positive. For me, you know, it's really important for me personally that Black people see themselves and feel a sense of pride and feel that sense that I felt when I was riding my bike listening to the podcast of really feeling seen. And there's a reason why we say on the record and off the record as journalists, because this is on the record, mm-hmm. you know, and, and hopefully it can be used as a tool ongoing that marks what our history is. Deeply fact-checked, so you can say whatever you want. The facts are there, it stands, and it's on the record. So for me, that's one of the most important things. You know, look, I mean, people are gonna say what they're gonna say. We know there are certain factions of this country um, that are going to try to continue to deny Black history and its connection, More, more importantly, its connection to how we live today in this country and who we are as a country today. But we make these things to put out and it, it's kind of not, it's up to the audience to, to consume them. You know, if I worried yeah. about, you know, the reviews and wh- how people are, I would drive myself crazy, yeah. you know? <laughs> so it's just, I, we, I put everything that I possibly could into it. Every mm-hmm. team member. I mean, I cannot tell you how dedicated this team was from everybody, from the cameraman mm-hmm. to the, I mean, I've never seen a group of black people, you know, mm-hmm. put everything into it, mm-hmm. you know, from the marketing team, the publicity people, like everybody, because it was a predominantly black team. You know, we had like a few, few wet, you know, committed white folks on there doing the do. <laughs> but, you know, it was mostly black people creating this. Yeah. Well, I and just it, wanted to ask you about that team, right? Because that's something that always gets thrown, you know, up at us around like, well, we can't find anybody, blah, blah, blah. Setting aside the pro football league where the losing coaches from the Super Bowl got head coaching jobs and the winning black coach did not. But that's a separate point. But they always say we can't find people. And yeah, you just did this Hulu documentary series with 70 plus staff mainly. So where did you find people and what has that been like in terms of having been in the entertainment you know, industry? What is that? What is your sense of the talent that exists versus needs to be developed versus need to be just identified? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're out there, you know, try harder to find us. 
You know, I mean, exactly. you know, the main problem I have, the, the main problem I have is that I'm, I'm, I'm constantly sharing with other showrunners. You know, I have a, a, a strong Rolodex and I like a strong, um, I'm aging, aging myself Rolodex, my God. But I have like a strong list. We, we knew exactly what you were saying. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, bring back the Rolodex. Yeah. You know, I mean, the talent is out there. We are always in need of developing more talent. And it's one of my you know, my main, you know, missions as a Black showrunner to constantly invest in young people and spend time with them and bring them up so that we can we can nurture a stronger... Like graphics, for example, we had a really hard time finding Black folks in graphics, you know? Mm-hmm. So there are certain areas of the production that are, you know, it's not that there aren't Black graphics folks out there, but to find a graphics, Black-run graphics house mm-hmm. it was very tricky. You know, we didn't end up being able to do that. You know, but we're out there and and this idea that we're not and that you just can't find anyone will look harder and consult yeah. other people and, you know, ask for recommendations. Don't just like look at the in the few wells that you already have and then say that we're not out there. We're out there and I made choices. I could have, you know, some of my producers, did they have as much experience as I probably needed? No. Like, for example, there's mm-hmm. one person I'm thinking of on the staff incredible young woman. I mean, when I talk about brilliant, I mean, watch her. Now, I could have chosen another person who happened to to be a white guy, wonderful guy too, super talented and amazing. And it would have been less work for me, but I'm in the business of nurturing black talent. And so that's what you do when you take it on. You go, okay, I'm going to have to, and her learning curve was unbelievable. I mean, I'm like, no, this is how you do it. And then it was 80% better in like two days, you know, but you need to, you need to do that. You know, in terms of leadership, I think that we as black people who are in leadership positions need to be able to take risks on our own and nurture them and give them, you know, the room to grow. Right. I'm tough too. Like if you don't do the job, you know, then that's another story. But right. But it's the, yeah, like one of my friends, Shindy Maxton, founded the Donors of Color Network. She has this phrase that diversity is inefficient because you have to work yeah. harder and people don't mm-hmm. actually appreciate that, which is a separate yeah, thing than the. Getting the yeah. payoff. You do have to work harder. Yeah. yeah. I had to do more heavy lifting in the scripting with them, but that's okay by me because they're off and running now and they're amazing, you know? Yeah. So, and the, the payoff is huge in that she has her lens that she brings because of her lived yeah. experience. Exactly. And exactly. Right. Who, well, who it, she, and it was, it, it was, it's inefficient to the extent that you want excellence, right? If you could, if you want to default to mediocre white guys, then that's actually quite uh, efficient there. Yeah, and it's not that he was even so we, mediocre. He was wonderful in his own right, but it's oh, just yeah, like not about these stories. Yeah, but these stories need to be told by black people. Oh, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, so. So, um, show we're close to wrapping up. How time flies. This is why. So, show and I sometimes end up we just like talk for hours and hours. But this is um, that's so great. I do want to end with like a few quick questions because you're such an a fascinating, amazing person. I know a bit about your own personal history. So, you're you're a multiracial, biracial black woman. Your mom's white, Jewish. You're Jewish. Your dad uh, was black American. Both your parents were hippies in rural Canada. I believe you spent part of your childhood on a commune. So yeah. I wanted to find out how did you end up in journalism? I don't know that I've ever, I don't know that I've ever, we really got, like, I got to ask you that question exactly. Like, I, I know you studied theater. I um, did. Then how did you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I consider myself a storyteller who's just changed mediums. Mm. And so at one point, I was in theater and I have a theater degree. And then I was doing a lot of waitressing and I was like, hmm. 
I wonder if I can do something else mm-hmm. because, you know, acting is the kind of thing like there are people who, who people who are in that creative discipline. I think they feel as though it's, they're put on earth to do that. And you should really feel that way if you're an actor. Otherwise, you should go do something else because it's very mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> and so I had to really ask myself, can you do something else? And um, the answer was yes. And so I had always had an interest in journalism. In fact, I did a minor in communications, which I thought was journalism at the time in my undergraduate, but then it ended up being the study of media, which wasn't as interesting to me. And applied to Columbia and got in. And, mm-hmm. you know, then very quickly was recruited by NBC for um, their diversity program and ended up spending more than 10 years there, really cutting my teeth in journalistically there. So journalism is storytelling and it's just a different, it's, it's a different medium than theater. And that's, you know, yeah, that's how I ended up. But I think I always had an interest. I love talking to people. I love hearing people's stories. Um, so uh, you just really found your place. I love, I've been love just following your trajectory and you're so talented. I'm like during just talking to you today right now, just trying not to cry. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> I am. Thanks, I really am. I mean, you know, you. it's and 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 how interesting and beautiful. I feel like we're it's really neat to both be working in this area of telling the real history of our country through this lens of, you know, race and racism and black history. I know that I was talking to you years ago when I was helping work on Steve's first book, Brown is the New White. And, you know, now here we are. I was watching the democracy episode in particular, Steve. And I was like, well, there's like all, you know, a lot of our key messaging and points mm-hmm. that you'd make in your book. And there it is laid out. Like we got our own little documentary episode. So it's like the, it's like this, you know, this sort of synergy. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you what's, what's next for Shoshana Guy and also inquiring minds want to know, does anything coming up next involve getting back into stand-up comedy is Shoshana had gotten <laughs> into stand-up comedy and, and it was so fun. of stand-up <laughs> comedy? There are videos <laughs> hidden somewhere on my Instagram. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm a person who loves to try different things. As we started out, I am currently sitting looking out at the ocean in Brazil um, and I'm about to go jump in, jump in the pool after this. Um, the decompression is real and um, really in need of rest. I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I, I worked on this. I gave it my all. So I'm resting right now. You know, I don't know what in particular. I know that I, you know, I want to keep telling Black stories. And I do have an interest in comedy as well. So I, I, I really don't know in particular what's next, but I do think that I've been teasing my team. I was like, guys, we can do anything now. Like, give me any show mm-hmm. to run. I can run it because yes. of the complexity, <laughs> the complexity Seriously. of the material, the pressure of the high stakes pressure of this project. You know, I feel like Oh yeah, I could run that. Oh, this? Oh yeah, I could run that in my sleep. I, I do think that the 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 muscle that I built around my leadership, you know, I'm really thinking about I'm I'm at the point in my life now where I'm starting to think about legacy mm-hmm. in terms of what I want to start like building to leave behind. And mm-hmm. I'm in particular focused in this business. I would like to be focused in particular on black women. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of the times we end up being the workhorses in our industry and not getting the credit that we deserve. And I just, why, why should that be the case? You know? And so I I am thinking in particular in terms of my future about how to lift up black women and give them opportunities to create and get the credit that they're just, that they justly deserve, get the money that they justly deserve. So that's one thing um, that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, How can I do that? 
Yeah. Well, I think the the whole project and um, the docuseries, your work, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's work, and that is rereading about her, you know, bio introductory as well. She was a journalist, like kind of stuck in mid level positions in mainstream institutions, mm. and then got the chance to go to the Times, and they got the Times to do this enormous thing that won a Pulitzer. So that, like you're saying, the talent was there, but mm-hmm. women have that, but it doesn't get empowered and invested in and elevated. I want to both congratulate you and thank you. Because I mean, I know what it's like to pour yourself into something, try to make a contribution. And it's an extraordinary work and I'm really grateful. Thank you. That you thank you. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, we, I was in a room, we went to Sundance to do some press and I was in a room there and just looking at all the Black people, even they didn't get to see it yet, but they were just watching the trailer and seeing their excitement and their gratitude really was enough reward for me. Yeah. So <laughs> I really want, everybody to watch it. As Nicole always says, this is a story for all Americans, not just Mm -hmm. Black Americans, because this is the American story. We want as many people to watch it. Please go, if you haven't watched it yet, please go to Hulu and watch it um, and keep watching it to the end. I personally think it just gets better and better. And yeah, we hope that we'll be able to hit you with season two. For now, we rest. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you you so much for having me. I love you. Appreciate you. Love you too. All right. That was a great conversation. That's, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. You can follow Shoshana Guy on Twitter at Shoshana underscore Guy. And you can watch all six episodes of the 1619 Project docuseries on Hulu. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram. You can follow us at, at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time. Celebrate Black History 365 days a year and keep the faith.